Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Sarah D. Wire. She covers the Justice Department and national security for the Los Angeles Times. She has a focus on January 6, 2021, the insurrection and domestic extremism. All of those will be our topics today. She previously covered Congress for the Times. Sarah, welcome and thank you for passing judgment with us. Thanks for having me. I want to get into all the details of what is happening with respect to the January 6th committee. But first, I want to talk about your experience on that day, because I have read about it. I have heard you speak about it, but I don't know that all of our listeners have. So could you tell us a little bit about where you were and what your experiences were on January 6th, 2021? I was one of about two dozen reporters who were inside the House chamber on January 6th, and I was with lawmakers as they were evacuated from the upper gallery. Um, you know, the main floor of the chamber had been evacuated while the glass was being broken, and the, the woman was shot trying to enter, uh, but you know, there were a few dozen of us still up in the upper gallery as you know, rioters were pounding on the doors and we were waiting for a safe escort outside the room. Um, I, I did interviews in the chamber. I did interviews with members as we were evacuated. And I was one of only, I think, three reporters who were allowed into the safe room with members. And so I spent about four hours with them uh, waiting for the Capitol to be cleared. Can you talk to us a little bit about the mood in this safe room? Were people just worried about their safety? Were they hoping to get out? Was there a discussion of we need to get past partisanship? Were there, was there a discussion of this is a tipping point and we need to act differently, none of which seemed to have actually happened? It was fascinating. There was a lot of fear. You could feel it was almost palpable. Um, you know, The members kind of went to their respective left and right side of the room um, you had some members who were wearing masks and some who weren't. And I distinctly remember arguments between uh, older Democrats and some of the members of the Freedom Caucus about whether to wear masks and members kind of laughing it off. Um, you know, there is there was a speech that Nancy Pelosi gave at the very end. Uh, before we were allowed out of the room. And I kick myself to this day that the audio I have from that speech is just unusable because it might be the best speech I ever heard her give. It was just off the cuff about the responsibility to walk back into the house chamber over the broken glass, over the you know smoke re- residue from the smoke bombs and finish their work. She got so many standing ovations that my audio just isn't usable. Do you think that she's better in those moments, those off-the-cuff moments? Because I've always heard the criticism of Nancy Pelosi, well, one of them is that she's great behind the scenes. She's a master negotiator. She's fantastic at strategy. She's not so great when it comes to giving speeches or appearing on television. Are those more her moments where you see the true Nancy Pelosi? Yeah, I'd say a little bit. I mean... um, She's great one-on-one. You hear that from every member. Uh, you know, she has a tendency to remember things about them that they practically don't remember about themselves. Um, you know, she made a point of calling Liz Cheney up to the dais when she spoke. 
so that there would be a Republican member of leadership up there with her. You know, Kevin McCarthy wasn't in the room at that point. Um, It really, you know, it kind of stood out and not all the applause was coming from Democrats. I remember that. Did you have a feeling sitting in that safe room for four hours with members of Congress, this will be a tipping point? It won't be business as usual after this moment. When we emerge from this room, we are going to, you know, I mean, there's so many ways we can finish that sentence, but fundamentally be a different country. Or did you feel it was going to be a few days and basically we would revert back to business as usual? I'd like to say I was an optimist, but realistically, no. Um, I've seen, I've covered Congress for almost a decade and it was just, we've been there so many times before that this will be the, the tipping point. I mean, Sandy Hook wasn't the tipping point. Right. I I mean, I remember what President Obama said after Sandy Hook, and I remember what many people said, which is basically we've we're now okay seeing body bags of kindergartners, and we're not going to do much about it. And it does seem to me that January sixth, it felt like this moment where we had an opportunity to be a fundamentally different country, and we didn't take it. And it seems to me that that story that you talked about of certain members just laughing off older members of Congress and saying, I won't wear a mask is maybe emblematic of the fact that really nothing was going to change as a result of an insurrection in the Capitol. Was there any just basic conversation between members of uh, the different party between Republicans and Democrats about, you know, are are you safe? Is your staff safe? Or was it all just back to this deep partisan divide that we've become so accustomed to? There was some of that happening, definitely. Um, you know, I do think even with all the distrust on the Hill, there is a lot more friendliness across the aisle than I think a lot of members want to acknowledge. Um, but as long as the conversations were about that, I feel like it, it came across that they were you know, willing to have friendly conversations. Um, but you also heard the opposite, you know, uh, one member yelling at others about, you know, this is all your fault. Um, you know, if you guys hadn't you know, riled up people, we wouldn't be here today in danger. Uh, you know, you had members practically in tears, uh, texting their loved ones. Or um, So I, I don't... I didn't get the impression that anything dramatic was going to change that day. Um, you know, when I was interviewing lawmakers in the safe room, uh, Democrats desperately wanted to talk, especially once they realized that I wasn't going to be telling everyone where we were. But Republicans didn't want to talk, but they kept putting a hand on my shoulder just to make sure that I was okay. So there is a human element to understanding what was happening on that day. And of course, in looking back, it now feels that we did largely revert to business as usual. And I think the committee itself and the formation of the committee, which we should probably transition to now, chose that. It, this is not a truly bipartisan committee in the sense that there are some Republicans, but they have been, as far as I can see, chastised by the Republican establishment for joining this committee. And I'm wondering if you can talk about your perspective on how the committee 
ended up being formed and whether or not you thought there was a moment of maybe this will be a true bipartisan investigation, or if it was just always a fait accompli that it was going to be mostly Democrats and a few Republicans who I think history will remember as standing up in this moment. You know, at first there was a, a lot of talk about having a bipartisan or nonpartisan, completely independent commission do an investigation. And you know, it's what Pelosi wanted. Uh, there were some you know, high-ranking Republicans who supported the idea and were willing to negotiate it and were actually kind of granted freedom to do those neg- negotiations by uh, Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader. But when it came time to actually hold the vote, Republicans wouldn't join Democrats in doing it. And so the House committee itself is kind of the best worst case scenario in a lot of Democrats' eyes. That, you know, at least it's something, but it's not what they wanted, which was something that appeared independent that, you know, maybe more Americans could trust because it was nonpartisan. Um, and then you had the, the falling out over who to name to the committee. Um, you know, Kevin McCarthy named some firebrands, including Jim Jordan, uh, one of the people who was subpoenaed this week to the committee. And I think he wanted some Trump allies on the committee to, you know, be that voice that we saw during the uh, the impeachment trials that kind of kept them from being the Democrats from being successful. Right. I mean, I remember the suggestions from Kevin McCarthy, and obviously I'm just speaking for myself, I thought that that's a great way to try and completely undermine the committee. And this is not a serious effort to have an investigation as to what happened. This is a serious effort to try and undermine an investigation into what happened. And I understand you're a journalist reporting. I'm not asking for you to um, agree or disagree with me, but I would like us to go from, you brought us into that day on January 6th a little bit, and then the formation of the committee. I'd like to move on to talk about the highlights of what has happened. I think it's difficult sometimes for the public, for listeners of the podcast, to keep track of everything. We hear subpoenas, failure to comply, referral for criminal contempt to the Department of Justice. But taking a step back, from your perspective, what are some of the big things we've learned from the committee's work about what happened on that day. So much of it happened right before our eyes, but then it seems like we're also learning a lot of new material as well. Yes. And and one reason I think a lot of your listeners might not feel like they're, you know, seeing all aspects of this is because so much of it has happened behind closed doors. You know, the committee has held one public hearing and what we know about what they've gathered and uncovered is largely from subpoenas they've issued and the court records from fights over documents and testimony that they want. Um, There've been very few leaks directly from the committee because they want to present a narrative when the hearing starts. They, you know, one thing they learned from the impeachments was that these drips of information for months made people not pay as much attention to the hearings because they felt like they already knew the story. I, I had a member tell me that a few weeks ago. And so they, they've really committed to not leaking information if possible. But some of it's still come out. You know, we've learned a lot more about, uh, you know, if there was discussion about what Mike Pence should do that day and 
the efforts to convince him to, um, you know, reject some of the electors and possibly have the states appoint new ones. And, you know, we know a lot more about, you know, what people were doing, trying to encourage President Trump to speak out and not being heard. Sarah, that's a really helpful explanation of some of the things that we've already learned and why we haven't learned a lot of things as well. And I think one of the questions that a lot of people are wondering now is, where is this going to end? I want to talk a little bit more about what's actually happened with respect to John Eastman, what's actually happening this week. But it strikes me that the looming question is, what are we expecting from the committee? Are we expecting a report, a criminal referral to the Department of Justice? Is that too politically charged? Will they make an assessment after the hearings? Do you have a sense of where we are on that? I've been thinking about this a lot, actually. You know, kind of what is the point? Um, you know, we know there's going to be at least one report, possibly two. Um, it's supposed to be you know, expected to be laid out as a narrative, you know, a comprehensive, trustworthy, definitive report of what happened that can in theory be used to craft legislation to prevent it from happening again. I mean, it'll be up to the public to whether it's seen that way. Um, So we know a report is likely. Um, A criminal referral has been a major point of contention. It's possible. Um, The question is going to be who to refer and whether DOJ would take it up. You know, the Justice Department is doing its own investigations, and it's been slow to act on anything that looks like partisan interference. And it's already dealing with criminal cases of the over 800 people who have been arrested for their actions on January 7th. So you did something which I think is so important, which is that the committee could have both a criminal referral, which I think is what a lot of people have focused on, meaning that there's a path to say, Department of Justice, please do something. And I can imagine that there are political views on both sides in terms of some people saying, yes, they should. And some people saying, no, let the Department of Justice look like it's making an independent assessment. But I think what's lost is potential legislation that might come out of this. Are there specific pieces of legislation that people are talking about that listeners should be aware of? Are there specific changes you think could be made? I know we talk about the Electoral Count Act, but is there anything else on the table right now? The Electoral Count Act really is the focus at this point. Um, And what specifically it says about the vice president's role on January 6th and, you know, whether it should be codified more firmly. Um, You know, the the argument that was being made before and after the riot was that Pence had the authority to basically waive the January 6th deadline set in that act and refer the slates back to the states and that let the states re-examine whether there was fraud and decide whether to name a different winner and pick another slate of electors. And which would kind of go in violation of what we all think of as, you know, the results of an election being the direct voice of the people rather than lawmakers. This is a strange question, but do you think we're going to need those safeguards again? I mean, we have maybe been very lucky, but we've never been at a moment where we have to talk about 
legislation which would essentially ask the vice president or ask others, don't undermine the Constitution. Don't undermine the very system that you seek to represent. Does it seem to you that what happened on January 6th could be a botched attempt of a better planned organization that we might see next time? Or was it an aberration and we shouldn't be so concerned? That is a really difficult question to answer. Maybe we don't know till we know. Yeah, that's the scary part. I mean, you, you, when I talk to elections officials, they tell me that it exposed a vulnerability in the country's election systems. That so much relies on local officials who might not have the best training, um, who are expected to follow state laws that differ state to state. Um, and, you know, a lot of the objections that were being raised were people who didn't understand the policies and procedures already in place to ensure an accurate election. You know, it also exposed problems with how the federal government views uh, threats made online and open source information gathering. And, you know, there were threats being made for violence for weeks online. And then we also hear that several federal agencies issued reports that, you know, there was no threat of violence that day. And so it's, I can see the avenue for changes to legislation. I can't answer whether it's necessary. It seems to me that in so many ways, and I know you think about and focus on the insurrection and extremism, that the genie is out of the bottle and that now we know where all the weaknesses are. Um, there are certain people and organizations who are going to want to exploit them. And, but I, I do want to focus more on what is happening right now with respect to the January 6th committee. We talked about what the end game may be just because I couldn't help myself and I wanted to get there, but can we talk a little bit about who some of the big names that have talked to the committee are? Have um, There's certainly been people who haven't complied with subpoenas, but who are some of the people who we should be thinking about who have complied? Uh, so the committee has heck, done over a thousand depositions. So a lot of people have spoken to the committee who average person has never even heard of. Uh, they have thousands of pages of communications, um, but, you know, realistically, most people's eyes are going to be on um, some of Trump's family members. Um, you know, his, his son-in-law um, testified to the committee. Uh, his daughter, Ivanka Trump, testified before the committee. Um, you know, the committee has also reached out to, you know, his campaign, uh, to White House officials, even some Department of Justice officials. You know, we know a lot of names of people who have resisted subpoenas. You know, Stephen Bannon was charged with contempt of Congress. Mark Meadows is currently fighting, a, a, you know, about whether his text messages should be handed over, things like that. But my, really, my eye is more on the people that we're not all familiar with, a lot of whom testified voluntarily, not subject to a subpoena. Um, these are the people, the quiet staffers in the back of the room that probably are the ones confirming a lot of what the committee feels like it already knows. 
And specifically, what do you think that they're able to provide that we don't already know or that the committee needs to hear? Um, So we know the committee is focused on a few key areas. Um, Preparation response by the federal and local law enforcement before January 6th. Um, Fundraising efforts related to lies about election fraud. Um, Online misinformation, extremist activity. The efforts to pressure lawmakers, both in Washington and in the states, to overturn the election. And then the organizers who planned the rallies. And when I I've talked to a handful of members who on the committee who've said that they are actually shocked by what they have learned. And you know, Jamie Raskin even said recently publicly that they've uncovered a story that will blow the roof off of the house. Um, we don't know too many of those details yet, but we're starting to see drips and drabs come out, especially, like I said, in, in those subpoenas and uh, court records. So I heard Congressman Raskin say that in perhaps in a very jaded way, my response was, well, nothing has yet. And I'm wondering if you have a sense, having covered Congress, obviously the midterm elections are coming up. Do you think there's anything that really could blow the roof off the House? It seems to me that there's so many things we already know that I would consider to be smoking guns. Is there anything that could fundamentally change for instance, the way people view their representatives or how they're going to vote in November? I honestly don't know. I mean, a lot of the rhetoric we're hearing, I'll be honest, echoes what we heard during the first impeachment trial. That, you know, and so, you know, I can't honestly say how many votes that changed. You know, being very immersed in some of these some of the background, yeah, when you start connecting all the dots, it, it's a more compelling story than just the individual pieces that are coming out. Um, I'm going to be very curious to see how they present this to the public. Um, you know, if, if you look back even at Watergate, those hearings weren't watched daily by everyone in the country. You know, I had to kind of seep in and take time. And so they don't really have the time right now. Well, the time or the inclination. And I guess I should actually ask you, do you have a sense of what this bombshell is? I mean, I have a sense of what we could learn that would connect dots that we already know exist, but not something that is fundamentally different from what we already expect. Is there chatter about what specifically Congressman Raskin is talking about here? No, to be honest. I mean, the you know little whispers maybe, but nothing... I, I sincerely doubt they have, you know, a recording of the president saying, you know, let's steal the election or anything like that. Like I'm, and then that might exist, but it's not something I'm aware of. And frankly, I mean, I feel like we have so many recordings from the former president saying something that's arguably different words, but the desire for the same consequences, let's steal the election, which yeah. is just peddling all of these lies and falsehoods about the election and trying to gin up support for that position. So, I mean, I'm at the point where I don't know what could be a bombshell and I don't know if there is a quote unquote bombshell, if people would even believe it. I mean, I guess that's where I am where, um, because this isn't a committee where it really is nonpartisan, which I don't think that even exists or, 
um, bipartisan in a different way, I can imagine that people just say it lacks credibility. But I, I hope I'm wrong. Sarah, last question for you. As we look forward to what's going to happen in June, what can we expect from the hearings? So the hearings are scheduled to begin June 9th, and there'll probably be eight hearings total over at least two weeks. Um, you know, some of these are going to be held in prime time. Some are going to be held during the workday. Um, there's going to be some in-person testimony, and there's expected to be a lot of video. And this is the committee's chance to lay out a complete narrative. You know, they have thousands of documents. They have hundreds of hours of depositions. And this is kind of their chance to tell a complete story. And I'm very interested to see how they uh, put it all together. Sarah D. Weyer of the Los Angeles Times. I learned a lot from talking to you. I'd love to continue this conversation, particularly after the hearings when we're looking forward to determine what, if anything, is going to happen as a result of the committee's work. So thank you so much for passing judgment with us. Thanks for having me. You can find Sarah D. Wire on Twitter at Sarah D. Wire. You can find me across social media at Levinson Jessica. We want to thank all of our listeners. Please continue to listen, rate, subscribe, and we wish you all a great day. Thank you.